0: Hi, I'm Frederick County Executive Jan Gardner, and you're listening to MAKO's newest local news platform, the Conduit Street Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today?
2: I'm doing fine. How are you, Kevin?
1: I'm doing very well. And today on the podcast, we are happy to have Mako's legal and policy counsel, Les Knapp. Les, how are you today? Doing well. Glad to be here, Kevin. Today on the podcast, we'll talk about two very important cases that just came down from Maryland state courts, and we'll talk about some of the ways that Maryland has it better than some of the states around us. So, Michael and Les, let's talk first about a recent Court of Appeals decision that really has major implications for local governments. This is a recent decision handed down by the Maryland Court of Appeals that could expand the concept of taxpayers' standing and allow taxpayers to sue local governments for waste and mismanagement, without a need to show a specific harm different from that of the general public. So Les, first of all, for all the non-lawyers out there, what do we mean when we talk about standing?
0: So standing is very important. It's basically your key to get into the court system. If you don't have standing, you can't bring a suit. So mm-hmm. what standing is there are different types of standing, and, and for taxpayer standing, generally, traditionally, there's been basically four requirements. One is you've got to prove you're a taxpayer in the jurisdiction subject to the lawsuit. Two, you have to allege that the challenged action by a local government or public official is either illegal or beyond their powers. Uh, and this has been interpreted by the courts to include uh, charges of waste, mm. mismanagement of funds. Mm-hmm. Three, you have to show that the challenge action may cause a pecuniary loss to either the taxpayer or an increase in their taxes. And four, you have to show some type of special interest that the alleged waste or mismanagement uh, is distinct from that of the general public. And this is common in many types of standing. You have to say, my property has been devalued by the government's action yeah. or my taxes are going up. Right
2: so so we 've seen that a lot with land use issues right' it's, you, you, if you 're on the other side of the county or you, if you 're from California you can 't necessarily come to Maryland and sue over a land use decision in the way that someone who 's right next door who could say, "I have a particular interest, my property value is affected, or my viewscape is affected you 've had to have that sort of special standing to be able to get in the door
0: correct you 've got to have that nexus. And some connection to the harm you're alleging the government is causing.
2: and so this case is basically about that principle as it applies to taxpayers. and do you do you have special status merely by being a taxpayer in the jurisdiction? Up until now, the answer was you had to have a special argument, but <laughs> but now, with
0: this court of appeals decision, uh, they're basically saying no. as long as you're a taxpayer, uh, and can show you're paying taxes in a jurisdiction, you're considered different
1: from the general public. So, so the four examples that you gave us earlier, now you just have to go to that number one and say, I can prove that I'm a taxpayer in this district, and therefore I have standing.
2: Correct. So that, that fourth prong is sort of dropped from the list, basically, because if you can show you're a taxpayer, that, that sort of satisfies that you're an interested party.
0: Yes, it, it removes what's been a long-standing requirement of taxpayer standing, and now basically makes it easier for any taxpayer within your jurisdiction to come forward and argue about waste or mismanagement of funds.
1: So, Les, we talked about the court making this ruling. This is the Maryland Court of Appeals. What's the background here? Where did this come from? Why did the court have this case in court, and why did they decide what they decided? So, this decision was
0: George v. Baltimore County. Uh, it was issued by the court on April 1st of this year, and originally it was brought by several Baltimore County taxpayers over alleged mismanagement of the county's animal shelter. Okay. And basically the circuit court granted summary judgment for the county, meaning they just dismissed the case, um, finding that the plaintiffs, the taxpayers, had failed to show they would suffer a loss or tax increase distinct from the general public. Right.
2: So back back to this exact question right. of are you a special case to be able to bring this legal argument. Right?
0: Exactly. Right. The plaintiff's appeal to the Court of Special Appeals, which also upheld that verdict right. for dismissal. Uh, but then the plaintiffs appeal to the Court of Appeals, and they've obviously turned that around.
1: And that's Court of Appeals is essentially it's the Supreme Court of Maryland. Correct. Right. We right. have okay. a
0: strange name for our, our court. Normally, in most other states, the Court of Appeals mm-hmm. is the intermediate court. Right. But for here, yes.
1: OK. So obviously, this has big implications, not only for Baltimore County, but of course, for all counties in Maryland, yeah. all local governments.
2: And, and legally speaking, less. I mean, this is probably the end of this show, right? From time to time, state decisions if they're on constitutional subjects, can can become – can be further appealed to the U.S. courts. But this doesn't look like it's that kind of thing, right? This is really – this is a state suit. It's about state law. It's the state courts. This is the end of the show, right?
0: Most likely, yes. Yeah. I, I, I,
1: an appeal is possible but I think unlikely given the, the subject matter of the case. Right. So bottom line, Les, this is not likely to open Pandora's box, right? But there could be st- – potentially significant implications down the road.
0: Yes, I, I'd say it's not opening, throwing the doors wide opening, but it is opening them much more than they were previously. Okay.
2: I mean, you'd, you'd have to think that, Every every budget process and every time you spend public funds, you're open to some degree of controversy and some degree of dissent, and that's normal, right? So that's I mean it's it's just the nature of the beast. It's Mm -hmm. part of public service. Is sometimes you have to make decisions that are unpopular. You have to make you know make judgments, and and especially if you raise tax rates in order to do something, there will be a party out there who's who's upset about it historically that wouldn't be enough to let you file a suit and claim that it was an overreach or you know un- an unreasonable thing we-, we theoretically could see now you know see that happening now but
1: i mean bringing a suit is expensive too i mean let's not forget right. About that right
2: yeah it's not it's not a trivial matter mm-hmm. uh, but is it is it conceivable we see some filings that you know you know i don't like that the budget spent this amount of money on this project or you know why are you doing this or that i mean this 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 particular case is about an animal shelter But it easily could have been, well, we're building a new park or we're cleaning up the beach or we decided to pave these roads and not those roads. Right, right. Yes. There's an awful lot of judgment calls that go into public budgeting that affects everyone as a taxpayer.
1: So, Michael, do you think this is going to cause local governments to second-guess some decisions, potentially some more red tape here, delayed budgets?
2: I I think that's what I would worry about. I I mean, I'm – I don't know, I mean, I guess this case goes back now to the lower courts for them to to decide on its merits, right?
0: right. Now the case goes back to circuit court, and it's actually going to go through a a full trial right
2: so they've they've resolved this question that that this case can go forward the The plaintiffs have standing, so now we'll decide whether you know the appropriation of money in this program will get shut down. That's what they were seeking right they're They're just seeking shut down the program. They didn't want a bag of money back. Right. Right? Yes. Yeah. So but but in in theory, I mean, I guess you could see that happening. You could see you could see county or state programs just be sort of in limbo while the courts sort out whether a litigant can shut it down as this is too much.
1: And we all know how long it can take to turn through the court systems years and years sometimes. So, yeah, you could see some stuff delayed, some stuff in limbo for sure.
2: I mean, we have I mean, we have a specific provision in the Maryland Constitution. We've talked about ways things can get on the ballot. One of them is things being referred you know, to to a citizen referendum by signatures, but you can't use that process for a budget issue. And the process being – you know, the thinking being you can't – you would effectively hold up an entire budget matter if you had to go two years until it can be on the ballot and right, so forth. Right. I wonder if the same problem applies. So you, pass, you pass a county budget in the month of May and then you end up sitting around for 16 months to find out whether you can build that park after all.
1: Right, yeah. right. I mean, definitely some potentially big implications here. Another case, Les, that just came down is a case coming out of the Maryland Appeals Court, and it holds that no local preemption in a Montgomery County pesticide case. And essentially here, Les, the Court of Special Appeals has rejected an argument that local governments are impliedly preempted from regulating the use of pesticides, and it upheld a Montgomery County pesticide regulation. So, Les, once again, for the non-lawyers out there, what exactly is preemption? So preemption is a pretty big deal. It's basically
0: the authority of a higher level of government, whether it's the state or federal government, telling a lower level of government, such as the county government, you can't regulate within
1: these areas. Right. And it, that, and of course that brings up a host of issues. There are always challenges and this, this decision is very significant because it sort of sets a precedent.
0: Yes. Now, there's two types of preemption, and it's very important to understand this. One is express preemption, and that's basically where the higher level of government, say the state, specifically says in law – Counties, municipalities you can 't regulate within these areas we 're preempting you, and that's has the advantage of being cl- very clear. everybody understands that and knows that
2: right and then and that also has another advantage of you put it in a bill, you pass it through a public process, and in theory you 've got you know the accountability of the legislative process where here 's what 's on the table here 's what it' mean we 're going to shut down the local levels of government from getting into this area vote on it, yes or no, and you may suffer the consequences if you've made a, a weird decision that way. But that, you know, a legislative process is a public one.
1: And more importantly, yeah, you have a hearing, right. you invite people to come and testify to talk about the bill. That's all very important. right?
2: So then, and that happens. They they pass bills in Maryland and elsewhere that preempt local governments. Sure. Right, right.
0: Yes. And with express preemption, whether you like the outcome or not, you everybody knows exactly where they stand. Right. But then we get to the second type of preemption, which is at the core of this case, and that's implied preemption. And implied preemption is a doctrine created by the courts that basically says, well, the, say the state didn't expressly preempt you. It doesn't say so in statute, but they've put so much laws and regulations within that area. They've basically occupied that field. Right. right. So local governments, you can't actually regulate there. Uh, and it's it's a – complicated multi-factor test uh, to determine implied preemption. This is a test created through common law, so it's by the courts. This is not any type of statute right. or law. And basically they look at a number of factors. And and seven are here. I'm not going to run through all of them, but I'll go through a couple. So whether local laws existed prior to the enactment of the state laws governing the same subject uh, whether a state agency responsible for administering and enforcing the state law has recognized local authority to act in the field, and whether a particular aspect of the field sought to be regulated by the local government has been addressed
1: by the state legislation. And we'll have all of those on our blog for people to go in and look at the show notes. But essentially here, Les, this case is about pesticide, but we've seen issues with solar siting, so land use issues, that come under this implied preemption doctrine and challenges from local governments uh, over whether or not the state can preempt them in any kind of field, but particularly with land use and, and of course, here with the pesticide case. Well
2: And, and tobacco sure. regulation sure. is sure. another area. If you dial back a, a decade, decade and a half, there was a, a big squabble over whether the state had fully occupied the field of regulating and overseeing tobacco usage, and the Maryland courts have basically come down on the side of saying, yes, we're preempted. Right. We've got a lot of fairness number of local laws that have been shelved because the courts have tossed them out.
1: So, Les, we said this is all about pesticide. What's the history here? What exactly did Montgomery County do and why did this end up in the courts?
0: So, a few years ago, um, and the case is Montgomery County versus complete lawn care. And basically, the county enacted a a ban um, on certain lawn care pesticides for use on uh, public and private property, things like playgrounds, recreation areas, and child care centers.
1: And this would only apply in Montgomery County, correct? This is a local right. law.
0: Correct. Mm-hmm. It exempted agricultural usage and it also contained some exceptions. So if you had like noxious or invasive weed species or there was a human health concern uh, or even preventing significant economic damage, you could still apply these pesticides in those areas.
2: But it was but it was it's a local law that's restricting sort of where and how pesticides pesticides could be used and applied
0: correct it was not banning them or right. from their primary uses or trying to put on additional labeling requirements or anything else of right. whether the federal or the state government has addressed
2: and labeling was a big big element in the case because sort of labeling and storage kind of stuff those were the centerpieces of where state law has stepped in and talked about, you know, what they expect of these chemical companies and whoever wants to distribute them.
0: Correct. And state law did not address any of the things that the county was trying to do. So this
1: is where preemption gets murky.
2: This is yes. the implied right. preemption, right? And right? Right. And so when, it, when it's not written right in the law and passed in a public hearing, instead, it's sort of cobbled together through a variety of court decisions. And you end up with seven factor tests. And then they changed the law in Pennsylvania or in Utah, and that may or may not matter here. It gets messy. Um, so this one was messy, right? And the, at the at the uh, circuit court level, we got a strange decision on this.
0: Yes. It, it was very murky. Um, complete Lawn care and several other businesses and county residents filed suit uh, in Maryland Circuit Court challenging the ban. Um, and the circuit court found that, yes, the state law did preempt the Montgomery County Ordinance. The county appealed the decision to the Court of Special Appeals, which issued this decision saying, no, there is no implied preemption here. It could still go to the Court of Appeals, our Supreme Court, and um, that's up in the air if the plaintiffs, complete long hair, and the others want to do that.
2: So what so happened here? Forward, just this to, to pieces together Montgomery is in this, at the circuit court law, level, the county lost. What do you think? Right. Right? Now the court of special, appeal, special in appeals, special appeals, that and, middle level so, has now ruled in the county's favor and said the circuit court was wrong in their holdings, right?
0: Correct. And this just highlights, I think, implied preemption is just very problematic and challenging not only for local governments, but for people that could be affected by their regulations because you don't know. And it just generates litigation, costs and time and effort uh, for all sides to challenge this. And having some more bright line test, express preemption, again, you know where everybody stands because it's in the law clearly. You you may or you may not regulate
1: within these areas. And Michael, you brought something up earlier. This is uh, litigating and not legislating, and that's right. one of the issues.
2: I mean, it's that's where we come down. I mean, you know, Mako's gig is representing county governments, so we come come at this with a perspective that we think local governments ought to have flexibility. But taking a step back, I, I mean, there there's there are there are weaknesses in the idea of. Important law getting decided by law clerks and judges just trying to do their best looking through precedent and sorting these things out. I mean, a lot of those, a lot of those local laws had been in effect on tobacco in particular, local laws that had been in effect for years, suddenly getting struck down out of, out of basically left field because the court said, you know what? We think it's about time the state just owned this area. Um, it's a peculiar spot. It's one that. I think I think we have a mind. We'd like to see more clear laws in Maryland out of this, even, even if that means the legislature giving guidance to the courts on how to interpret their own actions.
1: Right. And I think it's just, look, have a public hearing, have a process, let people come to the table, let people explain why this is good or bad and make it transparent.
2: Right. And, and we're going to lose those fights, at least some, some of, the of the time. time it's sure. not it's not it's not like we want a change of venue because we know we're going to win and local governments will just prevail before. For the state legislature no we're just i think we would like the idea that we're a stakeholder in this and basically county governments writ large didn't get to play any role in this case on on the pesticide matter until the circuit court told montgomery you know that their law had overstepped local government bounds
1: so give us a seat at the table yeah okay so short term and long term less what do you think this means for counties
2: so short term, it just
0: means that counties that want to enact these types of uh, pesticide regulations can likely do so. Um, the Montgomery County pesticides uh, will go back; regulations will go into effect, and they can enforce those. Other counties can follow suit, but again, there's some uncertainty there because this could be subject to appeal.
2: Right.
1: And Michael, so is, what about in the General Assembly? Do you think we'll see anything from this in the General Assembly next year?
2: I, I think it, I think the odds are very good that we will. This is a hotly contested issue. Uh, you have a number of you know of business interests who don't like uh, they don't like the specific elements in the county law. So yeah, the likelihood of this being just the beginning of that fight, I think, is pretty high. So in the in the 2020 session, m- maybe unless. I mean, yeah, if, if, if there's another appeal right, right. and this is going to the court of appeals and particularly if the local law got stayed and it doesn't go into effect pending that final appeal, maybe would they would wait on legislation. Wouldn't but, be such a rush. To yeah, but I think, I think the smart money is we'll see a bill in 2020 to just, you know, put up or shut up. They'll put it in there, propose. You know, local governments are explicitly preempted from doing this list of things regarding pesticides or chemicals or whatever, but at least it's the kind of debate that we want to have. It's a fair fight, bring everybody to the table and take a vote.
1: Right. Yes, it's about
2: transparency
1: and certainty. Okay, Les, any final thoughts on either one of these decisions before we head to break?
0: Basically, just going forward, it's always important for county governments to follow what's going on in the courts because what affects one county likely has implications for all, and these are two excellent examples.
1: For sure. Okay, we'll go ahead and take a break. Les, thank you so much for being with us today. When we come back, we'll talk about where Maryland has a leg up on some of its surrounding states. All that and more after the break. <music> This is John Frenay with Ion Annapolis to let
0: you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis, or under the podcast category at ionannapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So, if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper local weather, give a listen to the Ion Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning.
1: Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, you just returned from a conference down in Charleston, South Carolina, the Conference of Southern County Associations. Tell us about that. I know every time you go down there, you come back with a lot of great information. How was the trip? What did you bring back with you this time?
2: I tend to come home from this conference every year and I come home with a bunch of notes about, oh, we got to go check out Mississippi's doing this really good program or Arkansas has figured this thing out for their insurance or oh, the legislative team in Texas just killed this bill. We got to go take a look and see what the amendments were, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of that kind of stuff we bring home, but it's a really good professional level peer exchange. Uh, I always get a lot out of
1: it. I remember last year you came back and said that there was a lot of talk about, the Mako podcast. We were, <laughs> in terms of counties and associations, we were one of the first, I think. We're first. And hopefully yeah. you inspired a lot of counties, a lot of local governments to start their own podcasts. Have you seen any movement there? Did you hear any updates this year?
2: Up and running. I think uh, we're, we're happy to see. Uh, the Virginia Association of Counties just to our south, uh, they have been running a, a pretty good show. They've been going deep on a particular topic for each episode. Okay, I like and, that. And getting into that. So, Um, they've been, I think going a little deeper than we have been willing to, and I'm interested. I've been listening to theirs. Uh, they do a good job with that. The North Carolina association has recently launched their own. So they're up and running. Um, I think this is an idea that's catching on just, just reaching, reaching an audience. That's maybe a little different than your standard newsletter or bulletins and that sort of stuff. That's what we're trying to do. And I I think it's catching on.
1: That's the idea. So we mentioned in the lead to this episode that we were going to talk about ways that Maryland has a leg up on some of the states around us and you you were down there you talked to all of your your counterparts and staffs from different uh, different states and counties. Let's talk about some of the stuff that you heard that that makes Maryland stand out in relation to those other states and counties.
2: Well, Honestly, this goes back to a subject from the first half of this, this episode, uh, as Les was joining us talking about preemption issues in the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, preemption is a really hot issue in state legislatures across the country, um, maybe even especially in the Southeast region. And one of the big takeaways uh, that we had from, from this conference talking to the legislative staff for, from other state associations was just the breadth and depth of different bills being introduced and considered in state legislatures to remove powers from local governments and it's just I mean I ended up with a page and a half of these tiny little hand scribbled notes about I want to read what they did here and I can't believe they were talking about doing this there but um, it's just a it's a really big issue it's I I describe it as bread and butter for what Mako is about, and for what our our local governments believe in. Yeah, the idea of a state legislature stepping in and basically saying we don't think the counties can be trusted to do a local license or to make to make zoning decisions or to handle their own tax rates. We need to step in and oversee that stuff. So essentially
1: what you're saying yeah. is those states are saying we don't need county governments. We don't it, trust them to do anything.
2: I tell you, there's at least one bill introduced in the Florida legislature that I pulled up the bill while we were talking about it and reading through it. I came away with just fold up the tent. I mean, if this bill were to pass, fortunately it didn't pass, Right, but I mean, our counterparts at the Florida association of counties, they are like back against the wall every year trying to fend off these things just to sort of shut down the whole concept of home rule and local decision-making. I mean, you know, we, we spent time the last several years about local licenses for electricians. Right, Right. And, and like our legislature has been pretty sensitive on that front. We've talked about, we've got places where we want to have certain education requirements and the legislature said, that's pretty reasonable. Let's make sure we keep that around. Right. So they haven't stepped on our neck the way that some other legislatures seem to be willing to consider and sometimes do to their locals. And I know
1: you were involved in a session regarding preemption, specifically about Maryland and our fight regarding small cell wireless sighting. So I'm sure... Uh, the folks in those states that have had their necks stepped on were sort yep. of really impressed with how we were able to, to work with the General Assembly to handle that issue locally. Uh, so that obviously, I think, hopefully yep. folks took a lot away from that, from from your presentation there.
2: Yeah, a big conversation on, on that topic because it's one that's happening almost everywhere. I've lost count of how many states have have stepped in and taken over the approval process, taken it away from the communities and made it a state path. Right. Um, that's not happening here in Maryland, and I think we're going to see progress that just makes those you know, makes all that infrastructure fit in the neighborhood a little bit better and give us some input and some say, let the community be heard. That's what we want. Um, so I'm, I'm happy on that front, and that is a piece of this preemption matter. So, you know, not being explicitly preempted, trying to use less as technical terms, to try not be explicitly preempted on those permits and approvals is what we wanted. I'm happy with the outcome here. But that whole room was hunched over as as our colleague Natasha Mayhew was walking through the ins and outs of the Maryland bill and then how things ended up getting resolved. I could see other, you know, other, our other counterparts from other states. They're like, We let's get her card. We right. Gotta yeah, right. Up. We yeah. got
1: to follow up. And, and she was great. I mean, she <laughs> carried that bill. So, of course, hopefully they, they got her card and they're going to be calling it nonstop, I'm sure. But let's talk about maybe the difference between these other states where they're having so many issues with their legislatures, trying to preempt them and not trust them to handle day-to-day business and the difference between the Maryland General Assembly and Maryland's governor.
2: I, I think. I'd I'd like to think that Maryland's got this right. I mean, I think think that's where I would start and just say um, we appreciate, you know, some of the members of the legislature have a background in local government. And so they've been there. They sat on a city council or they were a mayor or a county commissioner. Now they're a state senator or state delegate. And that happens. So we get some people who have a direct experience. but I I think part of it is we represent county governments. People who grow up in Maryland really identify with their counties. You hear this all the time. Even if you just, if someone were to walk in the front door and ask the MAKO staff, well, where are you from? Uh, You know, you'd hear people saying, I'm I'm from Talbot County. I'm from Charles County. I'm from Washington County. I'm from from Annarondale County. I'm from Baltimore City. Right. Right. People, people sort of identify with their county
1: it's so true but even thinking about like youth hockey growing up it was the howard huskies the montgomery county the montgomery blue devils so you're right even in youth sports we identify with our county
2: sure so and like like state legislators when they're in the newspaper are referenced as so and so from calvert county so and so from st mary's County. i mean that's that's just i don't know it's natural here people have that that sort of affiliation and i think it carries over you get You get your public services that the county picks up your trash. The county does law enforcement. And I mean, you know, the the county funds the schools in the name of a countywide school board. County's front and center. It's on
1: the ground front line, right?
2: So I think wherever you fit in the policy process in Maryland, you can't help but appreciate that it's the counties delivering frontline services for most residents. And, I mean, if you're in a municipality and they've got a local police force or they've got special services, I'm sure you have a strong affiliation there as well. Right. Uh, but not everybody has the affinity for counties that Maryland does. I think that that's that our benefit here. So, I mean, bottom line is our General Assembly; they don't always go the way we want them to. Not even um, close. Right. No. Yeah. I, right. Yeah, we don't win every fight, <laughs> but like no one's taken seriously the idea that county governments can't be trusted to conduct functions of, you know, of public service, of managing their roads or deciding where to build parks. I mean, we just don't have that debate.
1: Really. Right. I mean, and obviously the, the counties are on the front lines. The counties know best where the park should be built, what roads need to be paved. And so I, I, I am very concerned about those states that you mentioned earlier and, and this fight over preemption, but of course, it's great to see that we, we do have such a great relationship with our General Assembly and with our governor and that they get it. They get it.
2: And and, and during, during this conversation, where we're in sort of a big horseshoe style room, I'm sitting next to the director of the Florida Association. And we kept going through notes and she was describing bills that were introduced in Florida and being considered and you know, the way they passed out of a committee or got amended and so forth. And I sort of yeah, there's this old joke about you see these headlines of strange things happening, and they all start with Florida man. I That's just true. I sort of write down on a note and hit pass the to her, I'm like Florida comma man, Florida. Is this, I mean, seriously, what are they doing down there? I mean, there? who
1: knows what they're doing down there? They're in the news every day, and it's Florida man. You know right. what the heck are you doing? Man?
2: I mean, one, one, one more one, example. One big difference, not to get too too far afield, but Florida has really strict term limits. I think you can only serve two terms in the legislature in Florida. And so that's a relatively quick turnaround from brand new to you're done. Right. And so now I've heard these stories about how coalitions of people who expect to run for office in a certain year are already plotting out who's going to be the Speaker of the House wow. a few years later because we know, you know whoever's there now, they're all done in a few years. Um, Completely different mindset. Right, exactly. I mean, so, and maybe that's got something to do with it. Maybe maybe having institutional knowledge in our deliberative bodies in Maryland, one of the benefits of that is they get to know MAKO. They build relationships with the county council back home. Right. They understand how their district interacts with the county districts. And they figure out, hey, I really care about potholes, but I'm a state senator. I'm not really in the pothole business. But I know who is. But I can make a call. Right? right, right. And that and that's that's how things ought to work.
1: So yeah, of course, that's one of the biggest arguments to to do away with term limits is that institutional knowledge. Of course, there are arguments on both sides, but I agree <laughs> with you that relationship building is so important. And if you can stick around long enough to understand the role of state associations and your county and your council, obviously that that's that's a great thing. Um Michael, so your takeaways from CSCA obviously are that I think you can come home with your head held high and that we have a great relationship with our general assembly, with our governor, but it sounds like we need to be concerned about some state legislatures and their relationship with their local government.
2: Yeah. And, and, and these kind of things can happen here. I mean, we'll see an individual bill here or there on a particular subject and that's fine. We can have an honest dialogue about anything, Right. but you know, the notion that there's almost a contempt for local decision-making in some places I feel like is a different kind of debate than we have here. And I'm thankful that we're on the right side of
1: that. Absolutely. And I know C S C A includes states like Texas and Florida. Yeah, right, what yeah. about Guam? Are we going that far out there? We've we, been yeah. talking
2: about expanding okay. the region and we've okay. got Texas, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Up there. Yeah, Actually, the, the real joke is the members of the Southeastern group, they're like, wait, we have Maryland? Right. I mean, they're saying what the same thing. What are you guys thing, doing right? up there? Right. <laughs> yes.
1: Okay, and we do have that exact conversation. Okay, so, what,
2: what's going on in
1: Maryland? So they we need to probably listen land. to the North Carolina podcast yeah. and see if they're saying, what the heck right, is Maryland right. doing yes. up there? I mean, That's we probably think they are high and mighty, right. Okay, so CSEA Obviously, great wrap up there. A lot of great knowledge, a lot of great input. Let's talk about the latest news coming out of Baltimore City. Big changes,
2: Michael. Yeah, times there are. Change- I mean, last last week we had a brief conversation as the ink wasn't even dry on on Mayor Pugh's resignation, but the pieces you know, have basically fallen into place there. Um, so, so you know, Jack Young uh, has spent some time as. The ex officio mayor in in the mayor's stead now officially stands in that role, and I, I think you know it has his eyes firmly looking forward. Sure. If you if you follow his social media presence, which has always been a relatively high profile, as the council's been focused on one topic or another, right? He's he's always been a communicator, uh, but now I think he's trying to take that that post and help talk, you know, we're looking forward, we're looking on doing the next thing, we're working with kids, we're looking for opportunities. So, I, I mean, I think he's, he's hitting the right notes and understands the situation he's in. Right?
1: And no doubt he cares deeply about the city he has for a long, long time. And, of course, Bernard Jack Young was the council president, so, of course, the council then needed to elect a new president because he – Bernard Jack Young is now the mayor, right?
2: Right. And so, uh, that process is an internal process, uh, among the council members, uh, Brandon Scott, a sitting council member uh, has emerged and got, got, has been voted in now by the council as, as the new council president, um, not a big shock that he would step into that role. And his
1: name, I mean, might be familiar, not just in the city, but for our listeners across the state, right?
2: Right. He was in the the gubernatorial election. He was on the ticket with Jim Shea. Right. And I I think, you know, in in what was a complicated multi-way primary race, uh, the two of them, both from the Baltimore area, really were talking a lot about where the city of Baltimore fits in Maryland's future. And I think, I think council president Scott, Mm -hmm. get used Mm -hmm. to using Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. phrases. I I think council member Scott, council president Scott, um, acquitted himself awfully well as, as, as someone who could sort of articulate that place and the central nature of Baltimore, not just on the map, but sort of in our hearts and in our economy and in our culture.
1: Right, absolutely, he did, and so we also heard big news from you know some of the the longtime council members won't be running
2: for reelection because they've got they've got their elections in twenty twenty. Right, a little so different. While, yeah, while most of the state is on a cycle looking at twenty twenty two, Baltimore City, and remember we're going to have a presidential primary in twenty twenty, so it'll be right. relatively early in the year. So that's why stuff is happening in the spring of nineteen. Pretty much has to be. <laughs> right of
1: course and so after decades of service on the council two of its sitting members mary pat clark and edward reisinger announced they do not intend to seek another council term michael obviously this is a big deal uh this is institutional knowledge walking out the door Ooh. i mean mary pat right. clark has been around since the 70s and Risinger for 24 years i believe right. in the city so having both of them leave at the same time that is a lot of institutional knowledge that the council will lack
2: right i mean I- we know that turnover is part, it's just part of public service. Some places have term limits, other places don't, but they're either, you know, they either show up by by the way of the ballot box or just by uh, the actor's decisions to say, okay, I've done this, this amount of time and I want to move on. Right. Uh, but it is, I mean, it is a change for a deliberative body to lose people, who have that kind of experience and that kind of a span of knowledge. So, I mean, that's, that, that'll be a challenge. And, we, you know, we certainly wish both of them the best. Of course. And, and we, will, we will work with the city council moving forward. Um, the, the Baltimore City you know, shares and I think exchanges issues with places from around the state. So they're a member of MAKO, and we plug them in very much into our policy planning and thinking and our events and so forth. Uh, but, I mean, the council's going to lose a lot with a couple of its lions uh, moving on.
1: I think it was great, though, to hear both of them say that they believe the council is in good hands, that the council is going to do good things moving forward. So I think always good to hear a longtime member of a body leaving and saying, look, I'm leaving this in good hands. These people, they got it.
2: Right. Well, you, I mean, you commit that kind of time. To public service and you know, district service, particularly in an urban environment, is a really different animal than almost anything else. Right. And being on a city council means you know, sort of understanding your community. You go to those meetings and you talk to everybody, and they see you at the grocery store, at the bowling alley, and. That, I mean, that is a way of life more than it's just a part-time job. This is, this is not a, you know, this is not just a gig economy sort of thing where you swing by do four years and then and punch out. No. This is, no, no, this is in
1: line at the grocery store. <laughs> this is at the dry cleaner, yep, all right? The time. This is constituent right. services. Mm-hmm. Okay. So obviously big changes there. We wish them all the best.
2: Right. And Oh, I mean, should, should mention, you know, Bill Henry, yes. another member of the council, uh, a two term member, uh, I think he sort of took a pledge saying oh, he only wanted to do two terms. Uh, he's, I guess, tipped that he's he's going to make an announcement. He's plans to run for city comptroller as opposed to coming back for for the city council. So that could be some change as well.
1: So the announcement of the announcement, and we certainly <laughs> expect him to run for city comptroller. So even more change there, right? So big changes. And Michael, let's go ahead and wrap this episode up with what we're looking forward to. Uh, any closing thoughts on our derby picks? Because, uh, did we do that? I think I did, and I was, I I lost. You hit the
2: board. I I think you, I think you were
1: able to (laughs) weasel (laughs) out of making actual pick.
2: That's that's basically true, right? So, so, so your horse, Tacitus, I think what I heard you say was that you really respect Bill Mott as a trainer. and you thought Tacitus was a really good-looking horse, but you know Bill Mott as a trainer is a guy who's going to win the Derby one of these days, so you should respect Bill Mott. I'll go with that. Yeah, with so that. so people who followed that advice, you might have had to read between the lines a little bit. Right. You could have cashed a, a very healthy ticket on the Derby. Two bucks gets you 130 um, I, on the other hand, I had – well, actually – I think I nailed the Derby too. It wasn't on the podcast, but I was speaking to a group of finance officers a few days before we recorded. And this has become tradition for you, right? Yeah. To talk about the derby, so, yeah right. People nudge me and so forth. And, and so I stood up and I said, the one thing I want you to do is bet against maximum security. Mm. And I outlined why he couldn't win the Derby. And so, um, as we know, uh, if you bet on maximum security, you were a loser, and that's the way I had it. I had this Derby red perfectly; just just fade that horse. So, so you had
1: maximum security winning, <laughs> but then being disqualified because no, he was running like no. a drunk driver
2: at oh, the well, end of the no, race. Okay. Right? I, I may not have had all the details, but like this isn't—we're not playing horse. I didn't have no, to hold no, the bank. No, right? You're right. You're so right. I just said. If you bet on this horse, you will lose, and that's what happened. All those people lost their money, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take credit for that. So
1: so I can imagine you getting, like, <laughs> angry texts for about 15 minutes while they were reviewing the end of that race, and then all what of a sudden those texts right? stopped, right? Something
2: like that. Okay, yeah, that's good.
1: okay. All right, so that'll that'll do it for this episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. And, Michael, any, any closing thoughts? Just
2: honestly, what I'm really looking forward to now is – when i get home and after she's heard this episode my wife telling me that she prefers my sick voice oh. to my regular one that it's not as annoying as my ordinary voice and i'll just have to live with it hey
1: we'll take it we'll <laughs> take it i'll take it too but anyway we'll go ahead and leave it there uh michael and kevin signing off as always if you enjoy the podcast please give us a like subscribe it really helps get our message out also it is maryland podcast month You can subscribe to the podcast Twitter feed. It is at Maryland podcast, a great group of podcasts featured this month. Please go and check them out. Trying to build the whole podcast community in the state. But until next week, Michael and Kevin signing off and we will talk to you soon.